Hello everyone, welcome back to our Sabbath School From Home podcast. Very glad that you have decided to spend this time with us. Ken's not able to join us today. He's busy uh, cooking pizza bases and uh, for Sabbath lunch. And as someone who's going to enjoy those pizza bases tomorrow at lunchtime, I fully endorse his pizza base cooking activity. So uh, he's not going to be on the podcast. Oh, and I'm Luke, because Ken's not here, so I need to go next. Yes. And I'm Lachlan, and I'm looking forward to an interesting conversation. Yeah, we're going to again just pick out a a very small excerpt from this week's uh, lesson, Uh, and we think it's an interesting part, and it's certainly a quest, sorry, certainly a topic that needs to be discussed, Uh, a parable that needs to be discussed in the context of, of this discussion we're having about death and the afterlife and the hope of resurrection and um as with last week's discussion we're going to turn to some of the uh questions that are posed in the lesson and maybe pull them in a slightly different direction Uh, i might start reading the passage it is a passage from luke Luke chapter 16 and i will start reading from verse 19 there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham! Have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Do I go next? Yeah. Uh, But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets... They won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Um, any thoughts before we jump into the, the question uh, posed by the, by the lesson? Oh, I mean, I have, I have long thought that uh, of all of Jesus' parables, this is, one of, this is one of the ones that ranks right up there as peak storytelling. Um, I, I think the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan is also one of these ones that just is a, f- a very fantastic, story it's this is this is a fun read yeah yeah yeah. i think that jesus is trying to have some fun here well i mean that's one way to look at it uh terrifying is another word (laughs) that you could describe it as um okay well let's jump into the question posed by the lesson why is this story not a literal description of the afterlife Ah. um okay (laughs) <laughs> that question presupposes something. How do we know this yeah. is not a literal description of the afterlife? But maybe we'll put that aside for now and come back to it. Um, 
Um, I think there's lots of ways you could answer this. One of them is that, um, and we've talked about this in previous weeks, one reason this is not a literal description of the afterlife is that Judaism, as opposed to contemporary religions, does not contain detailed description of the afterlife. Mm. It does not seem to be a priority of the of the authors. I mean, the other the other comment I would make here is that it seems to me that the very obvious priority of this story is not about the dead, but rather about the living. I think the I think the question also uh, presupposes a view in which any story in the Bible is literal unless shown to be otherwise. Oh, that's good. That's good because I think that is that is the default starting point for, for, for many, many, many people. Yes, that didn't even occur to me because it's definitely not my default starting point. Um, <clears throat> I mean, generally... Uh, Stories that survive in an oral culture and in a culture where writing is very expensive and time-consuming and not everyone can do it. Um, You know, writings, even in this New Testament era, only certain writings were preserved and those writings were preserved and passed from church to church to church. They were a very precious, rare commodity. Uh, Stories are preserved principally because they are useful. And, of course, Many of the useful stories are stories that are useful because they describe things that actually happened. Mm. Um, so, so it's certainly what I'm saying is not in conflict with the idea of things actually happening. But, but the stories, you know, meant things to people. It it helped them live better lives, uh, and this a hundred percent fits that category. There's so much sort of of sad irony. It could be comic. It could be tragic. To the final statement, um, you know, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced by someone raising, being raised from the dead. That that coming from the mouth of Christ is, is, you know, an excellent premonition of how the New Testament church was going to play out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, in in microcosm through the resurrection of an actual person called Lazarus, and then at a bigger scale through the resurrection of Jesus Himself. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it seems to me it's a very pointed story. Um, and this is what I meant about it being for the living. It doesn't seem to me as if this is the sort of story you would tell if you were trying hard to explain the geography or the architecture of heaven. But we're on shaky ground here, Locke, because we take a lot of passages that other denominations put in the same figurative category. I don't seriously believe that many denominations maintain. The lesson makes this claim. Some scholars suggest this passage should be interpreted literally. I don't believe it. I don't believe there's a single scholar who suggests that there's a, a place of torment with a geographical chasm between it with a place of... I, I just would be so surprised, uh, given that this particular geographical construct is not described in this way elsewhere in the Bible, and it's it's a one-off case. I'd be very surprised if anyone actually believed. You know, in other words, I think the lessons put up a straw man to mm, to knock to it down. Um, so that was going to take me somewhere, and I've forgotten where it is, uh, where it was going to take me. Right. No, but actually, actually, there's something interesting there, right? So there are many Christians who believe in a literal, everlasting, fiery torment. 
But even if you do believe in an everlasting fiery torment, the way that it is constructed in this story is still impossible. Right? There's a, there's a chasm that separates that you can't cross, but it's small enough that you can call out across it and easily be heard. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's got the element of, of sort of preposterousness to it. But that same element of preposterousness um, has been posed by, by thinkers in other contexts. So, for example, um, even if you believe in a literal um, six-day creation, as described in Genesis 1, there's a certain preposterousness to the waters above the firmament. Yeah. Right and above the stars, as it's literally yeah. described. And so but, my, my my comment about the, the, the within earshot and yet it's a great chasm might actually be a very similar comment to trying to play the sort of quibble game and say, Oh, actually, but where's the water above the stars? It's it's not just it's not just that it our listeners should go back and check, but the the um birds fly across the firmament and the stars are in it, yeah. set in the firmament, and the waters are above it. Um, so uh, it's not just that the water is above the the um, stars, it's that the stars are set in something. Yeah, which, which birds fly through. Which birds fly through and which is waterproof. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That separates the water. So uh, while I'm... I, I, the, our listeners have caught me in a very heretical moment. I, I feel most inclined to be rebellious so while we're on the subject of of things that um things that sound implausible uh here's another one in heaven where god is and uh where no sacrifices are made because the great sacrifice has already been made uh where no intermediate is needed to see god because we will all see him and worship him and know him what what need is there for a temple or a tabernacle Hmm. Um, that has a slight element of preposterousness. Now, now, most Adventists, and the way I've heard the doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary presented, to me, is of phases in Christ's ministry, a very symbolic interpretation. But we can't escape the fact that if, if we had gone back 40 years and, and seriously tried to maintain that point of view in many Adventist churches, we would have been decried as heretics. Yeah. Yeah, because it was um, it was particularly important that the heavenly sanctuary be a literal building. So, so this brings me to the next passage from the lesson, and uh, we're not being fair on the lesson by picking out the bits that we disagree with and glossing over the bits we agree with. We're perhaps not being fair to the writer of the lesson. Uh, my defence is um, the bits that on which there's general concurrence doesn't seem to be worth a discussion hmm. um so that's the justification for sort of honing in on on some of the other bits um there's this sentence and uh i don't know if you've read it Locke, but i'm sure you're going to love it uh, i'll read you this paragraph again some scholars scholars suggest that luke 16 19 to 31 should be interpreted literally that is as describing the state of the dead but this view would lead to several unbiblical conclusions and would contradict many of the passages that we've already looked at. Yeah. Yeah, it, it takes a particular kind of dexterity, doesn't it, to declare that a, that a plain reading of the biblical text itself is an unbiblical reading. The first thought that comes to mind is that this is a useful sentence to deploy in many locations. 
<laughs> uh, I, I give you a great example. Uh, some scholars suggest that Genesis 1-1 should be interpreted literally. Yeah. That is as describing the creation of the world. But this view would lead to several unbiblical conclusions and would contradict many of the passages that we could otherwise look at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, and repeat for whatever part of the Bible you want. Well, well some, I, people, I, some people like to repeat it for the, for the, the passages that, that we are fond of on this podcast that call for a social justice, a kind of collective yeah. communal consciousness. Oh, conscience is really what I'm trying to say. And they say, well, some, you know, a direct, overly literal reading of that is going to lead to unbiblical positions where we care more about someone's life here and now than we do about their eternal destiny. Um, what, what, what uh, sorry, jumping, jumping to the end of that conversation, but what makes them think that there is any particular material difference, spiritually speaking, between someone's life here and now and their <laughs> eternal well, uh, fate. it's not just that, because if the measure, although it's interesting here, it doesn't say this view would lead to several unbiblical conclusions, which are unbiblical because they uh, contradict other passages. It <laughs> yeah. says this view would lead to several unbiblical conclusions and would, as, a, as an additional point, it would contradict uh. other passages of Scripture. So that's even worse. So you can oh, have dear. unbiblical conclusions that don't contradict. Um Ah, that's what it seems to suggest. But what if what if someone who is sceptical, who is a who was a say a first century Jew, came to you and said, "You you keep claiming that this carpenter from Nazareth, Nazareth is the Messiah." Um, uh, but th this view leads to several unbiblical conclusions and would contradict many of the passages hmm. which we study. Now it does in the details in many places. Um, the Messiah is in places presented as a military, mm. like a, a political figure that that achieves a, a, a military victory. And it, it is unescapably painted. Now, of course, there are also passages like the passage in Isaiah with the suffering servant mm. that, that paint a picture that we feel much more resonant with. Now, I think it is legitimate to say, with the aid of hindsight, we can place emphasis more on some passages than other passages. Um, but I don't think it's fair to necessarily say uh, that our viewpoint is the is consistent with all of Scripture um, mm. or that it's necessarily the only view that someone could come to by reading the, the Scripture. Yeah. Even, even on the specific topic here uh, of the... <laughs> the architecture or the geography of heaven or Abraham's bosom and Hades, if, I, if I'm going to be pedantically careful in my reading of the text. Um, there, are, there are other Bible passages that, that f feel somewhat consistent with this picture of burning in flames. Um, it's, it's what I'm trying to say. I certainly do not subscribe to this picture of of, of hell, of everlasting torment, of conscious pain and suffering at the hand of God. Um, I see, I agree with the lesson in principle in that I see it as being fundamentally antithetical to some of the deepest themes that I read in the Bible. So I'm on the lessons side, yeah. but I'm not quite sure that I agree with the expression because the very fact that vast numbers of Christians today and throughout history 
have read their Bible diligently and formed an opinion that, that there must be something about burning forever, um, is, is making, makes us have to be very, very careful that they can't, they can't, I mean, wrong ideas do persist for all manner of reasons, but very persistent wrong ideas usually have some substance. Some, well, this some, is, yeah. We, we talked about this with Gamaliel. This is, uh, that's the argument he uses when he, when they all want to kill the New Testament church. And he says, I want to be careful about this because, mm. you know, if it's a man-made idea, it will die out. And if it's from God, it will last. Mm. Um, so, you know, and we like his reasoning there, although when it's applied in the way that you just applied it, we, we might feel perhaps a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. Um, I suppose mm. the thing that I wrestle with is on what basis do we decide whether or not something in the Bible should be interpreted literally? Well, even literally... Even what does it mean to interpret something what, literally? What, is it, what does it even mean in the first place to interpret something literally? Because mm. the, the, the lesson as we read it here doesn't, doesn't do that. The contention of the lesson seems to be we don't agree. This, this verse can't be literal because it doesn't agree with our reading of the Bible. Therefore, this must not be literal. Yeah. Because if it was literal, it would contradict what we believe. But I. But that's not. That's ba- that, reverse. That's yeah. That you can't go around basing your your interpretation of the Bible on what. I mean, where does that start? Where does it start? It's circular. It's, yes, it's, it's circular logic. It's a bit like the cart's a bit before the horse. It's a. Uh, it's a bit like uh, the statement that um, uh, Adventists. Uh, are sometimes perceived as being very against sex, but this is simply because it sometimes leads to dancing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, there's there's an element of this where, you know, why is this story not literal? Because it doesn't support our view, which mm. seems to suggest that we have formed a view and then are using that view to, to retrospectively... whether or not something is literal. Thank you for putting it much clearer than yeah. I did, Cam. Um, yeah, but but we problem. but this is the problem with interpreting anything literally mm. is it's always dependent on your view. Like a Bayesian statistician would say that you need a prior, yeah. Um, which is as <laughs> much as to say you can't do statistics or good science without making assumptions. It's not mm. possible to do it without making assumptions, and and um, you do this even when you try and read a, a text literally. So if if I gave you a text that was a series of words with numbers next to it, mm. and it's just a word and numbers, word. Numbers, word numbers, and the words were names and the numbers were eight digits long, you'd say, ah, telephone numbers. Mm. Um, if the words were things like flower... I, I was thinking birthdays, but... Oh, yeah, well, okay. But you would have to, you'd have to make some intelligent guess. If, if, depending on what the last four digits were, if the last yes. four digits looked like they had occurred in the last 100, 100 years... years. Yeah. And and in the first four, it only went up to 12 and only went up to 31, then you could deduce... Uh-huh. But even more, that depends on the names... Because if the names were very old, yeah, then it wouldn't necessarily have to be numbers in the last yeah. four years. So even even with this simple example you've given us, Cam, it's actually quite complex. It's quite complicated. If the words were ingredients, pantry items, you would say recipe. Yeah. Um, so or shopping list. Or shopping list. And how many you're, you're going to purchase, uh, particularly if, if, for instance, it was whole number. Yeah. So so that's, that's a single... It's not a single genre. It's also genres, but it's a single form. Words, number. Words, number. Words, number. Words, number. And we 
we bring to it, we do some a bit of rough deduction, we look at it and we say, I think this is a list of birth dates, or I think it's a list of telephone numbers, or I think this is a list of shopping list. Mm. Um, and, um, and then we interpret it literally. We think that the person's birthday literally was this, or yeah. literally, yeah. But we don't think that someone has created a list where they have to go out and buy 2,968,400 whatever Henry Joneses. Mm. Um, because if you tried to interpret the phone directory as a shopping list, it would be a very difficult shopping list. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. even, when you, even when you want to interpret it literally, there is always an initial um, interpretive step. Yeah. So there's two two comments that I want to make. You, you, your your question at the moment is how can we? What's the what's the test we could use to know whether we're meant to interpret something literally or not? I don't have an answer to it, but I can at least exclude two common answers here. So the first common answer is what does um like what does Jesus think? You know, this is a good Christian response. So you posed with some element of the Old Testament, and you say, well, is that literal? Um, like, is that really how it happened? And then you turn to the new one and, um, and I, I've heard Jesus quoting of Genesis, um, one or two, where he talks about marriage and he talks about for that reason, a husband shall leave his parents' house and, and join with his wife. And I've heard it argued, well, Jesus clearly is knowledgeable about the creation account in Genesis and is clearly taking it at face value, therefore so should we. But on that basis, Jesus is the one telling this story in Luke 16. So so on that basis, if that were a valid or helpful argument, then that would be that would be forcing us to take this passage literally as well. And then the other the other one is okay, well, but this is a this is a parable. So when Jesus is telling parables, they're clearly not meant to take it literally. And the problem that I have with that is simply, okay then, but what what can you how can you convince me that some other parts of the bible are not parable like in their in, in their genre so to speak i mean for it's example cross. the one that i keep coming back to if we get away from the hot button issue of genesis 1 to 3 no. what about the book of job is job yeah. literal in its account of a literal person and a literal discussion between satan and the rulers of other realms in heaven or is it a parable and and I'm not well, quite sure of the answer, but does it really matter? What would it change in the way that you, in what you take away, and the way that you read the Book of Job, for yeah. example? Well, and the Book of Jonah. There, there was no. You can walk across Sydney in three days, and and it says in Jonah that Nineveh took three days to walk across. There, until the last century, there have been no cities ever mm. that required three days to walk across, unless as when I was this was being discussed in a class at Avondale, and one of the theology students. Uh, suggested maybe that Jonah had his wife with him and she was shopping. <laughs> um, so, oh, dear. And ever since I've felt that, answered that, um, yeah, that dilemma. Well, so. Theological conundrum solved. Yeah. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Job Lock because you can see quite a few similarities in style and and setting of Job and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, both of them involved these sort of consequential discussions Mm. about the nature of existence yeah uh, taking taking place outside of the human world ah 
Yeah, um, you're you know, right. Because famously, Job start has that the, the devil, and and again, this idea of heaven and hell being close enough to to talk across, but not reach somehow. Yeah. And even the um, even the idea of being, uh, you know, of of what would it take? So so in Job, uh, this is stretching it slightly, but in Job, the question is, well, what would it take? Satan's contention is, well, Job only likes you because you're being kind to him. If you take this stuff away, he'll surely turn against you. Um, so what would it take to, to sort of change his mind? And the contention in this parable is what would it take? What would it take to persuade the um the the five brothers? And Jesus's contention is, well, Abraham in the story says, well, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, it won't even help. Even if someone raises from the dead. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, really, uh, Christ doesn't need to explain whether this actually happened. And I mean, this is perhaps more obvious. We we draw on this because there because there's we don't know what happens after you die. Mm-hmm. Um, you could hold a similar discussion um, uh, with his other parables. Uh, was there really a road from Jerusalem to Jericho that contained an inn? Where was the inn? Mm-hmm. Why would a Samaritan go on that journey? Was it near Samaria? What was he doing with a donkey? Um, how much was that worth? Well, you could, you, if you wanted to, you could pull that story apart. Yeah. Um, the master. Why was he late? Why did he give the servants different amounts? Did why did was ma- the why was the bridegroom late? Why was the bridegroom late? Yeah. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Is this is this what was there an actual bridegroom where this actually happened? Um, and as soon as you use, as soon as you address those sorts of questions to the parables where. Very obviously, it doesn't matter whether mm. there was an actual Samaritan. Mm. Mm. Even though Christ, Christ says, um, you know, there was a certain man walking from. Uh, he he says it as definitely as if it as if it happened, um, and the same in this passage. Um, you know, I think the lesson is correct. So I, I think this is one of the places. A bit like last week in our discussion, where we agree with the lesson, but we think that the lesson should push this critical mindset uh, to other passages as well. Yeah. I think I think it's a good question. Why is this not a story, not a literal description of the afterlife? Well, why would you think it would be? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it comes partly down to what sort of <clears throat> what sort of pedagogy or sort of teaching structure, teaching style, Jesus might be employing so I'll, I'll give you the example one of the things that i do in my lecture notes for first year physics where i have some students that have done lots of maths and physics at school and others that have not only done none at school but haven't been at school for the last 10 years because they've been doing other things maybe trades maybe travel maybe something else that's a very diverse audience and so one of the things i do is i have a special reserved color and I throw extra details in, in that color, but at the start of the semester and throughout, I remind everyone that they can safely ignore anything that's in that color in the notes. Um, this is a way of trying to kind of multi-thread, throw out an interesting hook for someone that might have met a lot of it before, but not stress or confuse someone who is who is doing their best to keep up full stop. Now, I have actually heard from, I can't remember any, any single specific authority to quote here. Um, sadly, I don't know of the C.S. Lewis quote that would be relevant in this point. But I, I understand that the parables in the, in the Gospels, um, the re- record of Jesus' ministry, 
the, the parables are a style of teaching through story that is not like that. It's not trying to be multi-layered with lots of nuance. It's not trying to be a complete analogy. Parables are extremely direct and have one point. And in the Good Samaritan story, the, the point is love your neighbor even if you don't like them. Uh, in this parable, the point is absolutely powerfully punched home at the end. There are people who cannot be persuaded. There is nothing you could do to persuade them. The most miraculous thing won't work. It's and the it's the wineskins. It's the, you know, your old wineskins. And if we try and pour new wine into you, you will crack open. Yes, yes. And, and the same, the same with the, um, with, for example, the story of the talents. You know, trying to get into a nuanced discussion about the allegorical interpretation or the application of some get more and some get less. Who are the people who get more? I, I think... If I if I understand this this um, recollection of hearing a um, some uh, someone who knows what they're talking about discuss the parables, then then my understanding is that to try and pull that sort of analogy out is out too far is is overdoing what the parable is about. The parable is the, the rest of the parable exists to set up the final conversation between the third servant and the master. The parable is about make use of what you have, be productive and useful. It's the same parable as, as the fruit on the vine, um, really. And, and so if, there's some, if, if that's a useful thing to bring to this, then, then <clears throat> it suggests that I don't think there's any ambiguity yeah. about what the main point is here. I don't think that it is very reasonable to read this story and say, aha, the key point of Jesus telling this is to give us insight into the mechanics of the afterlife. Yeah. If I can, if I can, I'm looking, eyeing the clock lock, and we've managed about five weeks with sub 40 minute podcasts, and we're running out of time to wrap this up if we're going to keep the streak. So I'm, I'm going to offer this as a sort of concluding thought. Um, if you look at a subway map, this is an analogy we might have used before. I can't remember. But if you look at a, a map of the British Underground or the New South Wales train system, uh, it is. Um, demonstrably uh, very inaccurate at many points. Oh, let's let's just say it's not literal, Cam. It's not literal. That there's these long straight sections of track with stations exactly equally spaced, and that it only turns in right-hand bends or at forty-five degrees, and um, uh, the stations are not to scale, and the distance between the stations are not to scale. And for that matter, the different train lines are different colours, which they're not in the... Right, primary colours, usually. Primary colours. And secondary. Yeah. So um, they're demonstrably not, um, not literal, but it would be unfair to say they are un not truthful. Mm. Because we have a limited capacity as humans. If you present a human with a detailed topographical map, even even that requires some interpretation. If if every time yeah, you wanted to navigate, it requires a lot of interpretation. Yeah. have you seen the legends on those things? Yeah, well, okay. So <laughs> supposing you provided someone with a scale model in three dimensions, every time they wanted to know where to get from Strathfield to Barawa or something um, on on the Sydney train network, um, supposing you then provided them with a with as literal as possible representation mm. of the train network. Yeah, were they were they had superhuman information processing capability, that would suffice. But none of us do. And so given that given that the um, 
person who's creating the map of the train network is creating it for people, and those people have a certain limited capacity for processing information. Um, the train network maps are the most truthful that you could get for mm. the purpose that they're intended. And I think this is the distinction that the lesson is trying to get at. And in this story, it, it, I agree with the lesson. This is one of those stories where where there is a purpose and to t- God's trying to teach us and we like stories and we latch on to stories. They're memorable to us um, and they mean things to us. In a story, we experience mm-hmm. ideas, abstract ideas. We can actually experience them. Um, so uh, maybe that can be applied to other parts of the scripture. And if... If someone's, if you tried to convince someone that it really mattered how literal the train network map was, uh, and that person said to you, uh, "I find this map very useful," mm. then you've yeah. got two people talking past each other, and this is, I think, the problem that we have in some of the contentious areas. So, the heavenly sanctuary has been a source of huge contention. Mm. Um, uh, Genesis is another area of contention. Um, you know, where the Adventist church has generated um, the most heat and the least light, as it were, hmm. it's possibly because there are people operating just on different agendas. Yeah. There are some people who seem to care a lot more where, about whether it happened, and there are some people who, who don't seem to care. Mm. Uh, and and uh, trying to make sense of that as a community is, is, is the tough challenge. That might be a good thought to wrap up on. Right. Because it is a, it is a tough challenge, but it's worth doing. Yeah, and, and it's worth perhaps not assuming that our, point of, our own personal point of view is correct mm. and then using it as the measuring stick to decide what's literal and what isn't. There's um, one, other, and... one other helpful extension of, of what you've just said because I think it is really helpful. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a seminar that I sat through two weeks ago at the University of Newcastle that was actually arranged for physics and maths faculty. Um, but we, those of us that were there can't quite work out why. Um, it was fascinating nonetheless. It was people from um, sort of social science part of the university came and reported on some of the work they've been doing over 10 years or more with um, Aboriginal commu- an Aboriginal community up um, in the Northern Territory talking about try, like trying to understand and, and um, help communicate some of the, the things from a cultural perspective of our Indigenous Australians. And so the, it was about song spirals, which are slightly like song lines, but they deliberately wanted to use the word spiral to make it seem less linear because they were aware that the word line brings connotations to the mind of a Western-educated um, sort, of, sort of mind. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make is one of the things that I think can happen is that you can say, ah, this Aboriginal dreaming story doesn't sound literal to me, therefore it's useless. And that's that's the same flawed thinking. It's the same error of judgment that we've been discussing purely within the context of Christian communities coming to different perspectives on biblical passages. But the the humility of conversation that you've called us to, I think, has even broader applications. Excellent. Well, we will leave it there. Um, please share this podcast with anyone that you feel would benefit. And um, if you want to contact us, you can email us at uh, sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And uh, please join us again next week.